Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. Over 200 hours of audio presentations are available on our website for you to download and burn to a CD for use in your car or home stereo, or to play on a portable player, such as an iPod. If you don't know how, visit our website for some instructions, or just listen to the presentations on your computer. Also available is a schedule of our upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. All this is available at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. This program, entitled Flesh and Blood, A Study of the Incarnate Word, was presented by Dr. William Marshner, Professor of Theology at Christendom College at St. Leo the Great Catholic Church in Fairfax, Virginia, in January 2010. This is part three of a three-part series. We hope you enjoy this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Well, welcome Dr. Marshner back again. Thank you, Sabatino. Today, we get into the philosophical conundra. That's the plural of conundrum. Philosophical conundra that produced... Uh, a very nasty history of heresies about our Lord in the first five, six centuries of the church's existence. Now, I have already said something about the system of thought that gave rise to the first wave of heresies. I've said something about Gnosticism which was the idea that the flesh, indeed matter as a whole, was so evil, the good God could not have created it. The world is kind of a giant cosmic prison. The body is evil. Matter is evil. Salvation consists in escaping from it. Well, people who thought that way uh, needless to say, couldn't believe that a Savior sent from the true God would really take flesh. So they denied the reality of our Lord's flesh and blood. The name, uh, other than Gnosticism, the name of that heresy was taken from the Greek word that means to seem, dokeo, to seem, D-O-K-E-O. So they call themselves docetists. Well, better pronunciation, docetists, but nobody says that. Think D-O-K-E-T-I-S-T-S. -T -T that means it was all a seeming, okay? His body was like, um, like one of those uh, holographs. In Star Wars, help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. <laughs> He's just a light show there, right? And so that was the idea that they had about our Lord's body. Well, fortunately, um, the uh, heresy had already, I guess this is fortunate, the heresy had already turned up before the ink was dry on the New Testament. You see St. Paul anticipating some of it in 1 Corinthians 15, where he insists that Christ's body was real, and in the resurrection we get real bodies back. Then you see the Apostle John mentioning it 
in that third little epistle of his. He's run into heretics, and he says, when you run into somebody, you ask them, do you believe that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh? If they say yes, give them the hand of fellowship. If they say no, ah, 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 ah. Okay. I tried this one time. When I, was, uh, when I was still a Protestant, I was living in New Haven, and there was this nice black lady came along the street. She was collecting for her local church. <laughs> and I looked her in the eye, gave her a fishy look, and I said, Miss, do you believe that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh? She said, oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> Nobody thinks that there's any issue about that anymore. That's because Gnosticism is long dead, thank goodness. But it was an issue at the end of the first century. All right, we had some wonderful Christian writers early in the second century, principally Irenaeus, by the way, he was a man from the Middle East, but got to the south of France and became bishop down there in Lyon, Lyon, L-Y-O-N, Lyon. And he wrote these uh, wonderful books against the heresies in which he cleaned the clock of the Gnostics six ways from Sunday. So by the middle of the second century, Gnosticism was on the ropes, okay? And it was agreed on all hands that our Lord had a real body taken from the real flesh of the Blessed Virgin, okay? He had real blood. He was a human being. All right, not a light show. You would think that at that point our troubles would be over, but they weren't. At that point, they were just beginning. Let me give you a heads up about the next important heresy that came down the pike, and that was produced by a man named Apollonius, like Apollo with N-I-U-S on the end, Apollonius. He thought that when the scriptures say God became flesh or took flesh, that's exactly what it meant. He took flesh and nothing else. So in other words, he had a human body but no human soul. Okay? Well, I mean, after all, the Son of God's a spiritual being. He'd come down and lodge in this body and take the place of the soul. So this, this, this body moved around and did things as if it were alive. But really and truly, the power controlling this body was simply the invisible, spiritual Son of God. Okay? No human soul. Okay. It is a neat, simple, simplistic solution. Okay? Erase the human soul, put in its place the second person of the Trinity, and bingo. There's Jesus. Unfortunately, 
The Apollonian theory means that Christ was not a true man. Okay? Basically, it turns him into an animated, well, no, not even animated. It turns him into an unusually supple puppet. Okay? There's nothing to his humanity except the body, which means he never made any free human decisions. Okay? And so there was no merit in his choice to suffer for us and die for us. It was just God doing it all. And after all, God didn't have any suffering to do. Moreover, the flesh of Christ, if it had no human soul, didn't feel any pain. There was no real passion. So, neat as the theory sounds, it does not work. It destroys our Lord's humanity. Now, you might think that Apollonianism is dead. Unfortunately, I ran into it. This was about 20 years ago. I was out in Oregon giving lectures, of course, and there was a nice, real nice group of people out there. They were uh, lay people who were sick and tired of all the mess in the church and all the mess in catechetics, and they were really mad that so many of these liberal priests would say to them, uh, well, you know, uh, Jesus, um, he didn't really know who he was, uh, maybe, until, uh, maybe until the resurrection. But, you know, he, he didn't have any consciousness of his divinity until maybe he rose again. Then he thought, well, gee, here I am again. I must be something special. This, some of you may have heard this sort of teaching. It was very popular 15, 20, 25 years ago, denying that our Lord had full consciousness of his messianic mission, of his uh, divine identity, and so on. Well, these folks out in Oregon figured they had the ideal way to refute this modern liberal nonsense. They would just say that Christ had no human knowledge. He just had the divine knowledge. So he always knew everything. What's the problem? So um, I got out there, and I don't know, I forget what I was talking about that weekend, but I heard this theory of theirs, and I said, whoa, wait a minute. Not so fast. You can't deny that our Lord had human knowledge. And they said, why not? And I had, a, I had a big fight on my hands that weekend. So here were perfectly orthodox, they, they thought, <laughs> conservative Catholics trying to fight the liberals and picking up the wrong weapon. Okay? Who'd have thunk that you'd go to Oregon and run into a nest of Apollinarians. <laughs> All right. Now then, I have to stop talking about our Lord for just a minute. I need to start the next thread of my story somewhere else. And the place to start is with the Trinity. Now, let me see. 
I don't see any chalk. You got. Oh, good. Excellent. Ah, we got the big money in. <laughs> okay. How to talk about the Trinity was an issue that was being debated in the church. Heresies arose in these same early centuries. Progress had to be made. At one point, all around the year 215 A.D., there was a heretic whom we know only as the Busy Bee. Okay? In Greek, his name was Praxeus, P-R-A-X-E-A-S, which means the, the man of affairs or the Busy Bee. And uh, he, got, uh, he was in Rome for a while, then he got down into North Africa and was spreading um, a very bad idea about the Trinity. And um, Tertullian <coughs> undertook to write a book against him. Tertullian, a very difficult character, Tertullian, he was a Roman lawyer. And he was the kind of lawyer you want if you want to sue somebody. Did you ever hear the expression, I want a lawyer mean as a junkyard dog? That was Tertullian. Okay? And in fact, he was so mean, he ultimately ended up out of the church. He was a, a rigorist and a... Never mind. Anyway, he wrote this book against the busy bee, called Against Praxius. And in that book, he's very orthodox. And he did pioneering work establishing in the West, in the Latin-speaking church, the right way to talk about the Trinity. Okay? We get from Tertullian the vocabulary that you all know from the creeds. Namely, we're going to say, oops, three and one. Three what? Oopsie-daisy. No wonder my chalk keeps disappearing. Three personae. That comes directly over into English as persons, huh? And what are we going to say there's one of in God? Oh, dear. Don't give me that modern translation of the creed. Substance. One substance in three persons. And that in Latin was substantia, and of course that comes directly into English as substance. Okay? You might keep this trick in mind. It seems to have influenced uh, close to uh, 1,500 years of people who translate from Latin into other languages. You want to translate a Latin word into English? Don't do anything to it. Just respell it. Take the case ending off. All right, so that's, that's how we got the noun substance. All right, three persons and one substance. As of about the year 215 A.D., the vocabulary was fixed in the West. This is how we talk about the Trinity. The Father is a person in God. The Son, a person in God. Holy Spirit, a person in God. Okay? but they all three together are one substance. Hmm? Now, the Greek church, Greek-speaking half of the church, or three-quarters of the church as it was in those days, the Greek-speaking church 
needed to make the same kind of creedal statement, but needed to use a vocabulary in Greek. And this turned out not to be so easy. Already at the very first ecumenical council at Nicaea in the year 325 A.D., the fathers of the council hit upon a way of excluding a heresy. They said that the son is of the same substance as the father. The only begotten of the father that is begotten of his substance. Okay? But they didn't have the word substance. The word they had was usia. So that's the Greek word for this. O-U-S-I-A. Okay? Usia. Well, if you say that the Trinity is one substance, the Son is of the same substance as the Father, that's good. That's good. But then what are you going to say the Son is as distinct from the Father? Okay? As far as substance goes, he's the same. But he's also distinct from the Father. The Father sent the Son. The Father begat the Son. They're not identical. So uh, what do we say the Son and the Father each um, is? And for this, there was no settled Greek word until the year 360. Okay? That was a great year. Um, the Council of Nicaea was, um, you know, 40 years in the past, 35 years, uh, 35 years in the past. St. Athanasius' troubles were, were over. He'd recovered from all his exiles. He was back at peace in his great diocese, the city of Alexandria. And he said, it's time to have a council. Not a huge ecumenical council like Nicaea, but a little council in which we settle how we're going to talk about Trinitarian questions. So this was a little council held in Alexandria near 360, and the decision was made just to standardize vocabulary, so everybody's on the same sheet of music. The decision was made, we're going to say that in God there's one usia, right? And then we're going to say that there are three hypostases. H-Y-P-O-S-T-A-S-E-S. -S -S. Hypostases. That's the plural. If you want the singular, Put an I in the last syllable instead of the E. One hypostasis, three hypostases, like hypothesis and hypotheses. All right. The word was picked, okay? However, now came the trouble. To the ordinary Greek-speaking person, the difference between hypostasis and usia was one you couldn't really put your finger on. It just, the, both words more or less meant the, the, you know, the, the substance of a thing. 
uh, the, the reality of it, uh, the, 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 the core of it. Well, then what's the difference between them? Once it was agreed that we were going to use the word hypostasis to talk about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as three in God, it became imperative to have a definition. Okay? So, a very great man in those decades after the Council of Nicaea, himself a bishop, bishop up in um, Cappadocia, undertook to work this out. I'm talking about St. Basil the Great. Okay? St. Basil the Great. He provided the first account of what a hypostasis is, and I'm going to call it, just for purposes of vividness, St. Basil's recipe <laughs> for a hypostasis. Okay? He says, look, the difference between usia and hypostasis goes like this. The usia means the general nature of a thing. Okay? What many individuals can have in common. Okay? You and I have the same human nature. That's an usia. Rin Tin Tin and Lassie have the same canine nature. That's an usia. The general nature that many individuals can share in, that's the usia. That's the nature. Okay? Well then, what's the hypostasis? Well, think of Lassie and Rin Tin Tin again. Lassie isn't just canine nature. She's canine nature with lots of specific details. She's individualized, yes? Rin Tin Tin is individualized differently. Yep. They don't look the same, they're not in the same manner, they don't bark the same. Anyway, they're individualized differently. All right, so... Here's the recipe. Hypostasis. It includes the common nature but goes beyond it, right? So it is the common nature plus the individuating characteristics. Okay? That's too long to write plus individuating traits. That's a shorter word, and it will do. Okay? Take a common nature, add a very good sprinkling of individual traits, and the result is the individual, the hypostasis. Does everybody get it? Now, St. Basil was writing about the Trinity. That was his focus of interest. And so he next turned to say, well, what are those individuating traits? Whereby the Father is one individual, the Son another, the Holy Spirit a third, 
And he took his answer to that question directly from the scriptures. By the way, if you ever want to read uh, a good book uh, about the Trinity, you should get St. Basil's little book on the Holy Spirit. It's the best. Anyway, he is working on this problem of what individuates the divine persons. He gets his answer from the scriptures. What is unique to the Father above and beyond the divine nature is fatherhood. And what's unique to the Son above and beyond the divine nature is his begottenness. Okay? Fatherhood, begottenness or sonship. Okay? What individuates the Holy Spirit is a little harder to say. But anyway, that, that's how it worked. All right? That's all I want to say now about St. Basil. Because now I want to turn to what happened when St. Basil's recipe for a hypostasis was moved over and used in the theory of our Lord Christology. Okay? Well, now let's see. In our Lord, we have two things to consider, don't we? Not just the divinity, but also the humanity, right? So we have the divine, and we have the human. Okay. Now, as far as the divine nature is concerned, what we have in Christ amounts to an hypostasis. Because he's not just the divine nature incarnate, but the divine nature plus those individuating traits that belong to the Son. It's only the Son of God who became flesh, right? Not the Father, not the Spirit, not the whole Trinity, only the Son. Okay? So on the divine side, we have a hypostasis. Now on the human side, well, we certainly have the common human nature. I'll stick a divine in there. Uh, let's spell it right. And I'll stick a human in here. We have a common human nature, but that's not all we have. Okay? Look, our Lord did not take, did not take on human nature in the abstract, did he? Okay? He didn't become some abstraction like the average taxpayer. Okay. He becomes a full man with his own body, his own fingerprints, his own facial features, everything that individuates a human being. So he has the common human nature plus the individuating traits of Jesus of Nazareth, right? On the divine side, he's got the common divine nature plus the individuating traits of the eternal Son. On the human side, he's got common human nature plus the individuating traits of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, remember the recipe? Look at what I have on the board and tell me how many hypostases there are in Christ. Look at the board. 
Don't give me the right answer. <laughs> Look at the board. On both sides, the divine side and the human side, our Lord fits the recipe. Two hypostases in Christ. Oops. That doesn't sound right. And indeed, ah, we have a, uh, a very important heretic who needed to be dealt with in about the year 430. A very important heretic who did maintain in Christ there are two full hypostases. Translate his position into Latin, and it amounts to saying that there are in Christ two persons, the divine person and a human person. Well, this fellow's name was Nestorius. Okay? Nestorius takes what I've got on the board here and runs with it. If the logic gives it to you, it gives it to you. Nestorius maintained that the only sense in which our Lord was one okay, is the sense in which two characters might play the same role in a play. Okay? The Greek word, if they had a, a word for person, the closest thing they had was the word prosopon, which also meant a mask. And in the classical theater, the actors always wore these masks, so you could tell what character they were, they were being. All right? Now, I want you to imagine a school play, okay? Based on, uh, it's a comedy, based on the TV show that used to be on the air called Mr. Ed, okay? The wonderful Mr. Ed. Well, Somebody has to play the horse. Well, it isn't easy for one actor to play the horse. You're going to need an actor in the front of the horse costume and another actor in the back of the horse costume. Now you've got two actors playing the same role. See what I mean? That was Nestorius's theory of our Lord. Okay? Forgive the nasty comparison with Mr. Ed and horse outfits, but it's a vivid way to think about it. Of course, Nestorius spoke much more abstractly. He said that the man Jesus and the divine son play the same role in salvation history. Okay? They cooperate together perfectly. They are, if you will, one agent, but two persons, two hypostases. Okay? Now then, nobody quite saw what was wrong with Nestorius's position. It was kind of abstract until he got up in his pulpit. At this point, he'd risen in the ranks. He was Patriarch of Constantinople. He got up in his pulpit and preached that we really ought not to call Mary, the bearer of God, the mother of God. We shouldn't say that. Why not? 
Bishop Nestorius? Uh, that's traditional. We've always said, Mother of God, Theotokos. We've always said that. Well, for a long time we have. What's the matter with that? And he says, well, look, a mother is always the mother of a person. Isn't that right? Okay. Now ask yourself this. Is she the mother of the divine person? No. She's the mother of the human person. Right? So she's a man-bearer, not a God-bearer. Okay? If you want to call her something fancier than that, talk about the role that the man and the God play together. Okay? They go together to play the one role of Christ. So you can call her the Christ-bearer because she bore the human half of that. All right? Anyway, she's not truly the mother of God. She's only the mother of this guy down here, the human hypostasis. Okay, that made it hit the fan. A wonderful guy, I love this man, St. Cyril of Alexandria, blew his stack, so to speak. This heresy had to be silenced, and a council was organized at Ephesus with the full backing and consent of the Holy See, and Nestorius was condemned. No more could you say that there are two persons or two hypostases in Christ. You can't divide Christ up that way. Okay? Uh, so then, how do I fix what I have on the board? Okay? Orthodoxy demands a fix, right? How am I going to do the fix? I will tell you after we take our break. All right. We need to amend the theory that's on the blackboard to make it square with the orthodoxy established at the Council of Ephesus. You can't say there are two hypotheses in Christ. So the question is this. Obviously, he's a hypothesis on the divine side because he is the eternal son incarnate in the flesh. We're not going to tamper with that. So we're going to have to find a solution on the human side. So why isn't our Lord's case of human nature an individual a hypostasis? Why not? Okay. The simplest solution would be to say, well, this human nature isn't quite complete. It's got a hole in it. Okay? For example, it's got a hole in it where the human soul should be. Oops. That's no solution. That's Apollinarianism again. So that's condemned. No fix that way. All right, how about a smaller hole? Okay, taking away the whole soul, that's too big. How about a smaller hole? Let's say, yeah, he's got a soul in there, 
but he doesn't have a human will. Okay? Because after all, the father and the son always will the same. So let's say they had the same will. Nope. That wasn't condemned yet, but it was about to be condemned fairly soon. That heresy was known as monothelitism. Oh, and um, did you know the heresy called monothelitism was an early example of ecumenism God bad? <laughs> the emperor of Constantinople, the emperor of the Eastern Empire, I should say, at the time, wanted to restore religious unity to the empire. He wanted to get the Nestorians and their enemies uh, back together, and so he proposed this compromise solution. Let's say he just has one will. That was the Emperor Heraclius, great hero of mine. Okay. But emperors should keep their hands out of ecumenism. Okay. That heresy had to be condemned. And there's a nasty story about the, the whole thing because the Pope at the time was a guy named Honorius who, to say the least, was careless. Okay? He said, ah, oh, you know, you want to say one will, uh, you know, whatever you want to say. I mean, they always willed the same thing, didn't they? So if you want to say they had one will, oh, that's, that's fine. Okay. He just didn't look deeply into the issue, okay, and was faulted for that at the ecumenical council that condemned this stuff, okay? Nobody ever, nobody's saying he actually held the heresy, but we're saying he was just careless, and he let bad modes of speech flourish along with good modes of speech. Right. All right. So we can't solve our problem by putting a hole in the human nature. It's going to have to be entire. It's not missing any parts, any faculty. Okay. Let's try this. Suppose... There are not two hypostases in Christ because there are not two distinct natures. Huh? Let's try that. Let's say that yeah, there are two sets of individuating traits to individuate the Son and to individuate Jesus of Nazareth, but between them they have just one common nature. What do you call it? Oh, I know. Let's call it divine hyphen human. Yeah. Or how about divino human? That's another way to do these things. One common divine hyphen human nature. That is the perfect way to safeguard the unity of our Lord. That's what St. Cyril of Alexandria was campaigning for so hard, the unity of our Lord against people like Nestorius who wanted to divide him into two persons. 
we will safeguard that unity forever by saying that the divine and the human natures blend together in Christ to make one common nature. New slogan, one nature of the word incarnate. Mia thesis to logus arcofentos. One nature of the word incarnate. The guy who principally pushed this position was also a patriarch of Alexandria. His name was Dioscuros, D-I-O-S-C-U-R-O-S, Dioscuros or Dioscuros, however you want to say that. He was a man with a very stormy temper. And he insisted on his solution. And he ran into a buzzsaw. Quite rightly, he ran into a buzzsaw. I guess you can say the sharpest tooth on that buzzsaw was Pope Saint Leo I, Leo the Great. And it's easy to see why this theory should be rejected. Oh, it's convenient. Seems to solve the problem of our Lord's unity. But it has to be rejected because, look, according to this theory, he's neither God nor man. He's some kind of confounded hybrid. Okay? Is a mule a donkey? No. Is it a horse? No. It's a hybrid. He wouldn't be God or man if the two natures are blended together. Besides, how are you going to get a blended nature when you've got contradictory properties in those natures? The divine nature is eternal, invulnerable, immortal. The human nature is the opposite of those things. Human nature is in time. It's vulnerable to suffering and death. It's, well, mortal. It's finite, whereas the divine nature is infinite. Are you going to tell me that there's one common nature that's infinite and not infinite? Now you're talking contradictions. Does everybody see the problem? A blended nature is no good. Right? Just as you might say, blended scotch is not scotch. Sorry about that. All right. (laughs) So this theory won't work. And it is decisively rejected at the Council of Chalcedon, or Chalcedon, C-H-A-L-C-E-D-O-N. Chalcedon, or Chalcedon. All right. So there is the divine nature plus the individuating traits of the sun. There's the human nature plus the individuating traits of Jesus of Nazareth. These two natures are distinct, says the Council of Chalcedon. They are distinct. 
They are each complete. They're unmixed, unblended, uncurtailed. They're distinct but not separated. All right. They come together in Christ, but they remain distinct. Okay. The two natures come together in the one Christ, and yet they remain distinct the one not blending or bleeding into the other. Does everybody see what Chalcedon said? Now then, we have a problem. We are going to say, with Ephesus and with Chalcedon, the divine and the human in Christ are or belong to one hypostasis. One hypothesis has the complete divine nature with individuating traits, and it has the complete human nature with individuating traits. As you see, there is no solution but to amend St. Basil's recipe. The fathers of Chalcedon knew that the heresies were wrong. Our Lord is in two natures, not just from two natures, but of two natures, not just one. He's complete God and complete man, and yet he's one person or hypostasis. Okay? The Council of Chalcedon, in defense of holy orthodoxy, took a giant step into darkness. We knew what to say now, but the church was without a philosophical theory that would say exactly what a hypothesis is so that what I have on the board could come out true. St. Basil's recipe has to be amended. Okay. Now, I can't take you through all the steps in which that amendment was made, okay? But I'm going to try to take you into a shortcut. This isn't exactly history. It's more like a thought experiment. I'm going to take you through a shortcut so that you can begin to see how the darkness was turned into a light that vindicated the holy orthodoxy defined at the Council of Chalcedon. All right? I want you to think about this recipe that I have on the board here. It basically says if you take a common nature and add individual traits to it, a real individual will pop out. That's basically what the recipe says. There's got to be something wrong with that, and here's why. I want you to think of the $100 bill in my right pocket, okay? You know the general nature of a $100 bill, okay? U.S. currency. I want you to individuate it, okay? It's got its own serial number, right? Every bill has its own serial number on it, and it's got little wrinkles 
just exactly here and there. And it's got one little dog-eared corner. You want to think of any other details? Let's individuate this bill. We can individuate it to the nth degree. We can get down to its confounded atomic structure. And my right pocket remains disappointingly empty. You see, take a common nature and add individuating details and a real concrete individual does not pop out. Something is missing from the recipe. Now then, it took 800 years to come up with a really clear way of seeing what was missing, but eek! Oh! Once you see it, a lot of things become clear. Okay, suppose we say the recipe is missing the ingredient called existence. Existence. The difference between the $100 bill in my right pocket, which was fully individuated, and a real $100 bill is existence. Okay? Well, so it's the divine nature plus existence. Now the new recipe will make a hypostasis. And we'll add existence over here too. Or down here too. Human nature plus existence plus the individuating traits, that will be a hypostasis. All right? Now watch what we can do to solve the problem. We can say that our Lord has his nature and individuating traits, but he does not exercise a human act of existence. He is alive and complete in human nature, but existing with the divine existence. So the divine part in Christ is a complete hypothesis. Only the human part is not. It doesn't have a human existence. Now let's think about this a little bit. Okay? First of all, this answer allows me to say that St. Basil wasn't really wrong. Because remember, he was talking about the Trinity. Okay? In the Trinity, you've got the divine nature. And you know what's peculiar about the divine nature? It's got existence right in it. God exists by his nature. His essence or nature and his existence are the same thing. Okay? But you don't. I don't. I don't exist by my nature. Nobody does. Okay? Think of dodos. Lovely birds, used to be plentiful until the Portuguese got hold of them. I hope they were good to eat. Anyway, um, dodohood is a nature, huh? It once had lots of instances. Then the Portuguese shot them all. Okay? It doesn't have any instances anymore. Now, if dodohood 
contained existence in itself, they couldn't have eliminated all those individuals. They would exist by itself, unnecessarily. Similarly, you don't exist just by being human for the same reason. You are exterminable. A-bombs, bioweapons, chemical Ali, whatever. We are exterminable. If you existed by definition, the way God does, if you existed by definition, so to speak, you wouldn't have needed your parents. But you don't exist by definition. You exist because certain causes came together. Yes? And God supplied a soul. So, in creatures, existence is one thing, and their nature is another. Does everybody see? All right. This is the idea that was finally made clear around the year 1250, when people started debating the question, is there a real distinction between essence and existence? Is there a real distinction between what you are and the fact that you are? Hmm? This is not your everyday conversation topic. <laughs> Admit that. Okay. If you want to uh, make sure you never get invited to somebody's cocktail party again. <laughs> Bring this topic up and pursue it aggressively. <laughs> but fortunately, at one time, even up there in the woods of Gaul, there were people who debated this. Okay? And as soon as it became clear that essence and existence in a creature couldn't be quite the same, it became clear what we could say was missing from the human side of our Lord. Now, let's think about the implications. If he exists, not with a human act of being, but with the divine act of being, all right? then our Lord's being is eternal being. Yes? That which appears before us in the flesh and blood of Jesus of Nazareth has existed from eternity. <coughs> he exists with an existence that had no beginning and will have no end. That is why he can save us from the uttermost to the uttermost. That is how he is perpetual with an undying life, always existing to make intercession for us, and so on. All right? This is why the Sacred Heart deserves to be adored, why it deserves to be worshipped, okay? It's just a human heart, but it exists with the divine and eternal being. It beats with a human rhythm, but it exists with divine existence. Now then, 
Have I given you the complete solution? No. No. What I've shown you is the great clue that makes the path to the solution clear. Okay? In order to get from where we are now to the whole nine yards of the correct solution, you just have to ask yourself one more question. Again, I don't recommend that you bring this up at parties. But the question is this. It sounds funny. What exactly exists? I mean, what exactly does the existing when a thing exists? If I ask you what exists, you're going to say, uh, duh, everything. Everything there is, is. I mean, okay. But I, I don't mean that. I'm not asking what all there is. Okay. I'm asking, what does the existing, when something does the existing? And now, I'm going to give you a clue to how to answer that. Okay? And when I give this to my students, they bring out lengths of rope. <laughs> because they're about to string me up as a nominalist. You don't know what a nominalist is? Never mind. My students know. They're about to string me up. Because what I say to them is, this is going to sound funny, don't take it the wrong way, natures don't exist. <gasps> what? Natures don't exist. What I mean is, natures don't do the existing. What does the existing is not the nature, but the haver of the nature. Okay? Let's go back to canineity, common to Rin Tin Tin and Lassie. Does it exist? Does it do any existing? Well, can you meet it? Can you buy it at a puppy shop? Can you buy dog nature? No. Okay? Lassie is a haver of that nature. She exists. Rin Tin Tin is one who has the dog nature. He exists. What does the existing is the haver of the nature, not the nature itself. Okay? Is that okay with everybody? Does that make sense? Okay. Nature is, uh, the, it, it's like the crucial structure of the individual that has it. I mean, after all, uh, being a dog was not an accident to Rin Tin Tin. Uh, he, he couldn't have gotten by without his doghood. Just as I can't get by without my humanity. All right. Nobody can wave a magic wand and turn me into a frog. It won't work. I can't exist without my humanity because it structures me and I'm the haver of it. All right. So the correct answer to our mystery is a word that will pick out what it is to have a nature. 
The haver of the nature exists, not directly the nature itself. The haver of it exists. And there is a word for that. Yes, there is. Erase existence and put in subsistence. Okay? Which in Greek is hypostasis again, but this time taken as an abstract noun instead of a concrete one. Never mind. It gets to be a mess. Okay? To begin to express this idea, the Latins eventually threw in the towel and invented the word subsistentia. Okay? It has never been a popular word. Okay? There is a verb that goes with it, to subsist. Okay? Not used very often. But it was used at Vatican II to talk about the church. When they said that the the, the true church of Jesus Christ subsists in the Catholic Church. Remember that language? When we first met that language, we were, eh, are we quite safe with that? But in fact, it's a very good verb, because to, to subsist is to be concrete, not abstract. It's to be a whole, not a part. Okay? In other words, where the church of Christ comes out of abstraction, into concrete reality in history is the Catholic Church. Okay? It doesn't exist that way anywhere else. Yeah. Similarly, where a nature comes out of abstraction and exists as a concrete whole, it has a haver of that nature. To subsist is to have a nature. We say that our Lord subsisted in his divine nature, yeah? meaning he had it. And we say he also subsisted in human nature, meaning he had it. He's one haver and has two natures. Okay? Now it's clear. Now it's clear. This is the verb to subsist. What our Lord lacks on his human side is subsistentia. That's why there's no human act of being in Christ, only the divine one. There's no human hypostasis there, no human subsistent, because there's no human being who has his human nature. No human being has his human nature. The second person of the Trinity has it. That's it. You are not divine because your case of nature is had by a human being. Your nature has a human haver. Your humanity totally structures the one who has it. In Christ, that's not true. The divine person has his human nature, has it whole, has it entire. And that is about the best I can do to lay out for you the right answer to this question. From what subsists, there follows a real act of existing. In Christ, there's no human haver. 
only the divine haver. So in Christ, there's no human act of existing, only the divine act. Yes. So he really is God in the flesh. He is with divine being. Okay. The one who has this soul, this free choice, this humanity, this flesh, this blood. The one who has it all is the Son of God, begotten of the Father before all ages. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. For more information, recorded programs, or schedules of upcoming events, visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org.